0: Uh, a number of factors, including but not limited to uh, depression, anxiety, panic, a very um, tall stack of dishes, a whole lot of things to do, poor scheduling, and a number of other factors too complicated and messy to get into now, um, we are doing a very special episode of the Writer's Chat this week. Uh, I don't want to cancel because the questions are bangers, but at the same time, like, um, I I don't want to go back upstairs and set up a stream and then do everything and like make a giant production. I don't have the energy. Um I we'll just have to agree that this is going to be okay and then, you know, next week we'll get we'll get back on track with things. But um gosh, it just occurs to me that if this is somebody's first listening to this, um wow, they're in for a real delight. So, um yeah, let's you know what, let's just start with a small story and then we'll do the intro and then we'll get into things. There's like a very non-zero percent chance that I just um, I just got the plague um, sort of through secondary hand contact. Um, somebody sneezed and somebody else sneezed and then, you know, the outbreak daisy cha- continues and it befalls to me and I, I feel kind of ugh and that's putting it mildly um so if you're willing to put up with a few sniffles and me clearing my throat periodically and just generally uh having about this much energy even though the questions today kind of get spicy um yeah i think if we're all willing to rock and roll with a slightly non-standard presentation i think it'll i think it'll be a good one i think it'll really help some people so Let's uh let's do the let's do the intro to the best of our ability, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, planners, snifflers, sneezers, people who did their absolute bestest to avoid the plague as long as possible and then through no fault of their own just happened to like encounter people who were getting it or had it and you just didn't know because they didn't tell you until way after the fact and then it You just feel stupid and guilty, but here you are sniffling. Um, anybody who's had to restart a project a couple different times this week. <coughs> see, there's that cough. Um, coughers, uh, tuberculosis sufferers. Anybody who's, you know, ever had to uh, try not to cry during the story of Red Dead Redemption 2. Um, anybody who loves Moulin Rouge and most importantly, the comrades. Uh, hi, I'm John. I don't normally sound like this. But this is the writer's chat for September, the, uh, well we'll just call it, the week of the 6th, because it's the 6th when I'm recording this. Uh, normally this is done on Tuesday, we we did, I'm doing it today, because, well, I'm doing it today, what are you going to do? And uh, if you don't know what this is, this is me answering 13, a baker's dozen of questions collected from all different kinds and all different corners of social media, all about writing, editing, and publishing and stuff, and... Since it is my absolute pleasure and privilege to be somebody who helps you write better, um, I'm glad to answer some questions. Uh, Forgive the lack of usual intro. Forgive the lack of usual hoopla. Um, I I don't have it in me today. But here we are in my kitchen at my table, microphone and laptop in hand, just kind of knocking this thing out. Let's get started, shall we? Here we go as I pull the questions up. I'm so... Okay, question number one. Just imagine the usual graphics for this. What's the easiest way to start marketing my first book? One of the things that irritates me about this question is this idea that your first book gets marketed differently than your second book or your third book or your fifth book or whatever when really the only distinction is going to be whether or not you mention it to be your debut. And even then the amount of benefit or boost that's going to give you is not as high as you would think, and certainly never as high as what publishing tells you you should have when it comes to a debut. It's, it's nice, ha ha, you have a debut, but at the same time, it's not like, um, it's not gonna move, you, nobody's coming to you specifically because it's your debut. Oh, I only I only read debuting authors. That's not really a thing. So the question was, what was the easiest way to start? Okay, here's the absolute easiest way to start. You want to go on an outbound platform for social media. An outbound platform is an open platform that can reach new people as opposed to like a closed platform where you know everybody and there's a limited number of people. Closed platforms would be private Facebook groups, private Discord communities that don't see a lot of influx for new people or um, like just a text message chain of your 10 friends. Those are closed groups because there's not random people just... By happenstance or by algorithm, just coming in and getting involved. You want an outbound one because you always want to be able to reach more people. Because, and I think we've talked about this a bajillion times. But if you only ever tell your ten friends about your book, once you tell all ten and they all let's assume they all buy them, you've sold ten copies. Yay! But you're you're going to be really hard pressed to get that eleventh and twelfth sale. You want an outbound because you want to bring in new people and have the ability to have new people discover you. The easiest way to do it, get on this platform and do more than just drop sales info. You know, do more than just say, here's my book. It's this formulaic sentence and catchphrase. Here's the, you know, here's the link. Bye bye. You want to do more than that because there's so much more to do. There's You know, you you just gave the the text equivalent of like a billboard you drive past. You know, it's like, oh, they went to Jared or uh, Steven Singer or get your burger at the next, you know, exit 236. That's that's pretty much what you're doing every time you're only on Twitter, only ever posting this one thing and only ever posting a link. Now, people can spruce this up by having sort of recycled material. Hey, my book wouldn't be possible with link, 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 link. Here are the names of other people. You can buy it here. But as long as you're always repeating that and you're always repeating that kind of thing to the same audience, you're not really gonna get anywhere. I mean, you'll get a little bit, but there's not an even even in the the biggest, widest open field, if you're only ever saying the same thing, because it's easy and you can just cut and paste it you're not necessarily going to get the results you're looking for. The easiest thing to do before you sit down to your platform of choice is to figure out three to five different versions of what you're going to say. And each version should be unique. Different than all the others. Yeah, you're going to end up using the same link. You might end up using a couple of the same words. But really, really make an effort to highlight different things at different posts across social media. So let's let's create a hypothetical here let's say you're on facebook let's say you're on twitter let's say um <clears throat> let's say you're in a discord community right those three things you want to make sure you've got two or three options for things to say on each of those platforms that your twitter posts are different from each other that your facebook posts are different from each other that your highlight in the discord community is different from all the others and each of those things are different from each other across platforms. So your Twitter stuff is different than Facebook, different than Discord. While each in th- each thing is individually different from it from the others. This is going to take you a little bit of work. No one's saying it's going to you know it's not necessarily fast, but it is still the easiest. You want to have a variety of tools, a variety of pitches, a variety of sentences, a variety of adjectives, a variety of phrases. A variety of different calls to action hey don't just you know drop a link and walk away hey you can check out this book if you really love x y and z things right here click this link that's that's the best you're going to get at an easy approach to marketing your debut now do you really want to mention it being a debut up to you don't expect that to be like a major tipping point but it's nice to know in some cases because yeah there's a there's an argument to be made that if I keep talking about how it's my debut and I'm new at this, maybe you'll feel sorry for me and buy a book. But that's not really a button you can press more than once because you can only debut once. But the easiest way to go is to is to cold email, just or, or cold post, just get that information out and see what happens. Your returns, the possibility of responses is low, especially if you're new and you've got very little, if any, audience to speak of. Like you have a Twitter account and you post, but you don't follow enough people, you don't engage with enough people, so you're just sort of like shouting into a closet and hoping someone across the street hears you. It's a fixable issue. You just get more engaged with your social media, You you do more than just talk about your sales, and Over time, so long as you keep producing more than just posts about how you can buy things, people will hang around. You will develop some kind of audience over time. And it's easy in the sense that you just have to keep doing several simple things, but it's not fast. And one of the problems I have with this question is that I'm guessing easiest and fast have been partnered but not always mentioned. And and it doesn't work that way. Not for book marketing. You can do fast, but don't expect great results. And you can do easy and expect results, but don't expect speed. But the easiest thing to do is to just cold post. Just put out the lead, put out the hook, and see what happens. Good first question. On we go to question two. Question two, why is it so easy to self-insert? And is it bad because it's so easy? Self-insert happens a lot. Self-insert, if you don't know what that is, self-inserting is the idea that you are writing yourself into the story. Either because you're more or less in some way making yourself the character. You're telling your story or you are writing a character that is you. Not necessarily that you're the main character, but you are definitely like very central to the story. Or you're making yourself the main character. Or you are saying, here are the things that happened to me. And nine times out of ten, whenever somebody does that, they pick bad things. You know, like I had this this trauma, this abuse, this thing, this problem, this fault, this failing, this, 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 this. Nobody ever really stops and self-inserts on like, yeah, I didn't spill bleach. Or like, oh, I vacuumed today. Nobody self-inserts over positive things. They always want to self-insert over negative things. And that's to be expected now the reason why it's so easy to do that is because uh, a lot of writers lack the boundaries and the discipline to divorce themselves from their work in that dimension so there's a there's an indivisible let's say part of you that's going to be in your work it's you choosing your words saying what you're saying your word choice your idea choice it it they're fingerprints of yours. You can't get away from them. You can tell your work apart from somebody else's based on how you've said the same thing, even though you're in the same genre, even though you're writing the same sort of story. You're going to each tell them differently because they're two different people with two different like collections of tools that describe whatever it is you're writing. However, the divisible part is that personal information that has value... Like therapeutic value, cathartic value, experiential value, but not necessarily story value. And it's easy to self insert because, at least when you self insert, you give yourself a platform. You have a chance to be heard. And for so many people, th- whatever they're self inserting and their reasons for self inserting, it's often predicated on this idea that they've gone unheard. That no one's listening to them in their real life, in their real world, so they're going to make up this fantasy world and this fantasy story to work through their shit. And that's not bad and wrong. it's, it's It's a healthful, helpful thing, if you can make that distinction with my stuffy nose. It's not bad to do, but when it becomes the primary reason you're doing what you're doing, we are stepping away from, hey, is this publishable? And instead just sitting there working in a therapeutic space. And the reason why it's so easy to do is because you know your life. You'll never run out of things to say around that really bad thing you can't stop talking about. You really won't have a problem describing it. You'll never have to struggle for it because it's always there. Because the, the wound is really fresh and you keep picking at the scab. So you're always bringing it up. Always working it. Always injecting it into everything. And when, when you're young. And there's there there's not a clear division. Between the fiction you're creating. and And the life you're living. Because you're just telling your story. But your story carries too much of you. And not enough of your creativity. It's really easy and really tempting to do that. And... What I end up telling the vast majority of these authors is that, and I try to find the nicest way to say this as possible, you're immature as fuck. Like, it's a maturity thing. There's a difference between saying, this is my story, it has a bad part to it, I am now, you know, able to look at it objectively and turn it into fuel for a story or fuel for something so that I can describe and develop other parts of it and this is my this is my life this is a thing that happened to me isn't it bad that it happened to me please listen to me there's a substantial difference there in how those two things come across and it's so easy when you don't have some sense of objectivity when you don't have you know a sense of healing when you don't have the the discipline to create those boundaries and say, this is, this is a line I'm unwilling to cross in my fiction right now because I'm not ready to talk about it in a way that sounds like anything other than me really needing a hug and therapy. And that leaves us to the situation where we keep putting ourselves into our stories because we are looking to meet a need or scratch an itch or get some resolution that we feel we can't get otherwise. When it's small things... When there's no major trauma, when it's not, you know, two seconds away from screaming for a therapy session, this is not a problem. It's not bad to self-insert. It can be intellectually lazy when all of a sudden you're writing a, I don't know, a YA novel and you realize that you get a chance now to revisit your young adult years, but you can make yourself prettier or skinnier or more athletic or different or better you can have all your shit together this time it can be really tempting to do that it can be really appealing to do that and then it just so happens that the hunkiest or most hottest person is attracted to you because way back in in the young adult day nobody was giving you the time of day so this is your chance for whatever the insert name of hot person here to like be your date to the prom that self-inserting isn't bad like you're not you're not wrong it's a little lazy but wish fulfillment is a valid mode of story development just as much as you know creating something fantastic but self-inserting when you are just trauma dumping self-inserting when you are just trying to like have some kind of pathetic olympics where it's just, I'm going to try to win the gold medal for having the shittiest time. Like, that's that's not what your fiction is for. If, if you were crafting it so that you were getting it out of your head and no one was going to read it and you had no designs to publish it because you were just looking to therapeutically, essentially journal it, great, do that. But if you are doing it thinking that someone's going to read it and you're not objective about it because you're just vomiting out all the bad things that have happened to you and you haven't really like tended to yourself or or tried to give yourself some healing um, you are you are not marketable like it's not going to work no one wants to read like the horror story of your life if you're still living it this is what I talked about when we were picking off the scab and poking the wound you got to let it heal a little bit that's what makes that so tempting. That's what makes that so so not dangerous because that's melodramatic. But that's what makes it so uh, risky. It's not bad to do. Please don't assume that all self-inserting is bad. But when it's done because, oh my God, this is my story. And it's got all these bad things in it and I'm just going through it. The The other element of this that's worth talking about is if... You've, you've got all this you know ten bad things happen to you and they're they're bad bad capital B bad bad when um, when you write them badly or poorly and you don't get your your words across and you know someone goes to give you feedback uh, whether that's an editor or a critique partner or whatever uh, and they disagree with you And they don't disagree with you necessarily on the substance, but just on how you've presented it. You can get extra defensive because, oh my God, this happened to me and you're telling me I have to, you know, do something about it or change it or or affect it in some way. Yes, the answer is yes. Um, This is this kind of like traumatic self inserting is something that is way more common in younger, newer writers where they're just sort of figuring out like. Like 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 a newborn deer on on legs, just kind of gangly walking, trying to get their sense of things. Self-inserting is sort of that gangly sight, you know, that gangly stepping into the creative world to figure out how to walk. It's easy because you're always that source of information. You always know what you're talking about, so super helpful. Good question. On we go. Question number three: Will losing my catharsis make my writing worse? I have dreaded this question because I'm going to tell you a story. The vast majority of my professional career was not sober. And I would say that in those years where I was very seldom sober, I was very creative. I had a lot of output, I did a lot of projects, I was fairly financially successful, and somewhat financially stable mainly because i was just dumping more money back into doing more things and then whatever i had left over well, i was spending on illicit substances but i was to the my way of thinking i was very f- creative and very like i could just do a ton of shit and i was very fertile mentally could put together any number of ideas and i i was had a huge output i could write for hours a day and and you know, um, didn't focus or care about any other responsibilities other than being creative. It just—it felt good to do that. Then I got sober. I had to get sober. I had no choice. The—the the options were uh, continue to further decline on all fronts, including creatively, uh, or um, or do something to, to heal some part of my very busted up life. I I my I was beyond rock bottom, and I had to. I wasn't court ordered or anything. There wasn't like some external force demanding I do it. It was a a, a want for me because I, I wanted to not die. Just to be very plain about it, but I had during my run in rehab, I had serious existential panic and dread about whether or not I'd be able to go back to work at all, in any capacity. I didn't know if I could edit as quickly or as well as I used to. I didn't know if I'd ever have the number of rapid-fire, highly detailed ideas. I didn't know if I'd be able to connect the dots and help somebody the way I, I knew I could. And I always thought, and even now almost you know, almost a decade sober, I still think at times that I connected things and explored spaces mentally and creatively better while using than sober. But there was that fear that if you take the drugs away, you take my creativity away. And I I struggled. When I initially got out, I was afraid to be creative because I was afraid like it was a tank and I was going to run it dry and I would not be able to refill it because the thing that was refilling my tank so regularly were all the substances that I was no longer putting in my body. And in that way, my fuel, my catharsis, was gone for me. I had to find a new fuel. I had to find a new reason to do it. And I had to challenge myself and look at myself and say... The reason why I do what I do, the reason why I make the things I make, the reason why I work the way I do and do any of it is not because I took a pill or put a needle in my arm or anything like that. It's because I wanted to do those things, to produce those things, to reach people. And I ended up having to really stop and think about how there were times... Even if they were brief in comparison, there were times where I was sober but still doing what I did. Like I, I didn't go out and score drugs that day, but I was still had you know I was still doing some work. I was still you know kind of hung over from the night before, but I was still able to sit down and talk to somebody. Like there were times and opportunities where um, my non-soberness did not. In, did I say that right? Yes. No, we're going to flip that around. There were times my being sober did not impede my creativity. I was just not recognizing them or appreciating them because when we compare the quantity of them to the quantity of times where I was like, I worked for 12 hours and, you know, was out of my fucking gourd, uh, the numbers didn't match. Your catharsis. Is what you're using as a permission slip. It is not the fuel for your creativity. You are looking at your catharsis. Whatever it might be. And saying it's because of this thing that I can do what I do. And you're taking that to mean. This is the thing fueling me. You know. I feel this way. I had this experience. I'm angry about a thing. And that's what makes me right. It's not. Because when that feeling is not as active in you, when that feeling is not doing the driving, when it's a nice day for whatever reason, you're still able to do what you do. Now, it might not be motivated the same way, like on a day where you're real pissed off and, oh, fuck this, I'm going to show that teacher who told me I couldn't do it. You know, your writing might be more ferociously accomplished, slamming the keys with every finger, you know, writing in a flurry rather than a more steady stream in the course of a day. But catharsis is a permission slip. It's what you're using to access, or saying that it's okay to access the creative parts of yourself, as opposed to a finite resource you are consuming in order to be creative. I. Had to learn that I could do what I do differently. But I could do it sober. The methodology changed. But the action didn't. I still do what I do. I just don't do it the same way. And I don't just mean like oh I do it sober now. Versus not sober before. I mean the mechanics of what I do. The way the procedure of what I do changed. Because I actually had more time because I don't know if you know this, but doing drugs on the regular takes up a great deal of time. There's the getting them. There's the using them. There's the sort of like riding out their side effects part and then doing the work you're doing. And that eats up a lot of time. Whereas if you don't have to go out and spend, you know, six hours a day trying to buy enough drugs to get you high, then you have six hours where you can, you know, do more shit. It's, it's kind of nice. The, the important thing here is that you recognize it's a permission slip rather than fuel source. No, to answer your question, losing your catharsis, healing, resetting how you frame the world, finding peace, finding comfort, finding acceptance, letting go, whatever you want to call it, however you do it, will not destroy or eliminate your creativity. It might change the nature you have to access it with. You might have to, instead of getting really angry about a thing and then doing it to prove somebody wrong, you might have to do it because you just love to do it. But you can still be creative. Now, that all said, it is possible. There is a chance that you will discover that you don't want to be creative anymore, that you were doing this thing only because of the situation that, that you know, got you angry got you fired up before and then when you change the way you interface with that when you're no longer angry at your elementary school teacher or your college professor or you're no longer trying to prove yourself so that your parents love you you might discover oh I didn't really like doing this thing I was only doing it to prove a point now I don't have to prove that point I'm going to go spend my time and energy elsewhere that's a possibility and that's okay if that's the case You're not a bad human for healing. But no, I don't think your catharsis will destroy your creativity. Question number four. Is there really any difference between naming chapters and numbering them? Yeah. Uh, Naming them takes up more space on a line. And a number is less line-consuming. No, there's no major difference beyond that. Nobody really gives a shit. This is one of those things that I know exactly where this came from. Uh, People on Twitter decided that this was really important and people on TikTok decided this was really important because they needed content and they've decided to manufacture a conversation around a thing that's not a conversation topic. You want to number your chapters, go ahead. You want to name them specific things like, you know, chapter four versus... Chapter four dash the one where Steve buys a coffee. No one cares. Do whatever makes you happy to help you tell the best story. Next question. Question number five. What did Ronald Reagan do that irrevocably changed traditional publishing? Okay, well, first of all, Ronald Reagan is a war criminal and one of the worst presidents we've ever had. And I feel... Uh, Unquenchable guilt that when I was a little boy in the uh, early and mid 80s, uh, I thought Ronald Reagan was like super cool because I thought he individually like defeated communism on like a, like a person to person level. Like he went to everybody's door and punched him in the nose. And that's how we won. And then I got older and realized we didn't really win anything. Cause there's no like cash prize and, and it's just stupid. And then like, I found out what he cut for mental health and how he treated, uh, people dying with the AIDS crisis and how like he raped a lot of women and how he was just like a shitty dude. And, um, Yeah, fuck Ronald Reagan. He can go fucking spin and rot for all I give a shit about him. But he, he ruined traditional publishing. Like, ruined it. Here's how. He helped set up the agenda that allowed for the deregulation of large companies so that large companies could swallow each other, thus making it hard for individuals to sort of break in traditional publishing. Because all of a sudden now they have fewer outlets and they are uh, more selective in their choice, but not out of quality, just more a matter of there are just fewer spaces. So you've got to be more vicious and predatory. That's one thing he did. The other thing he did, and admittedly deregulation is a big deal, but the other thing he did was he cracked down hard on the idea of creative unions now, he never directly said this, uh, but he at one point was the the president of the Screen Actors Guild. Yeah, Ronald Reagan was a pro-union guy for about a hot minute until he realized that uh, he'd be way more popular and way more liked by people with money if he suddenly went conservative. Again, because Ronald Reagan is a giant piece of shit. But he shifted his view on how creativity exists. Now, in part that's because he started like hanging out and or getting, you know, uh what's the politest way of saying this? fucked by possibly one of his numerous uh astro uh astrology like girlfriends and 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 friends. This is before he cheated on his wife uh and then uh like settled down. But um He thought a great deal about at one point being very creative. He really respected creative people. He thought creativity was how we excel as a people and how we um, honor our God because that was his bullshit or um, how we just have our best life. And over time, he realized that what needed to happen because that's what he saw in Hollywood, was that uh, your creativity had to be commodified. The only way you could be creative wasn't just because you love being creative. It wasn't just because, oh my God, I feel driven by some greater than me force to make this art. He saw it as, well, I'm only as good at my art as people are willing to pay. And I am only good when I'm doing the thing people are paying me for so any art that I can't get paid for isn't good art and if I'm not doing it with a with an eye towards making it the best I can make it from a financial standpoint I'm a bad artist and because of this he turned around and looked at the creative unions of writers and actors and all this stuff and said you're doing it wrong because you don't need a union there shouldn't be a union like this and um, that's, that sounds an awful lot like communism and we then go from there. Ronald Reagan decided to make creativity something that you had to put a price tag on as opposed to making it about joy that's how he ruined publishing he made traditional publishing possible for large companies to swallow other large companies and then on a personal level he made it more of a business than it ever was before. That's how Ronald Reagan fucked us Question six, who determines when a writer is still new, I'm making air quotes, versus when they're not? Oh, I don't know if you know this. There's a a committee of like half a dozen people. They meet in an ivory tower that lurks behind the shadow of the moon. Uh, They have cookies and cocktails. And then they they, uh, decree by speaking through the horn of a unicorn uh, and then projected across all realities in perpetuity that uh if you started writing before this date, all of a sudden you 're legit uh none of that is true, none of that is accurate. You get to decide when you 're not new you do you're you're in charge of that too many times people want to talk about oh new writers because they 're looking to um like separate us versus them or separate experience levels and uh, make you feel inferior or highlight a lack of experience or education in a significant way. And it, it's not really helpful. It's not really good. And I think a lot of people put on the label of new. I'm a new writer. I'm new. Uh, and then you, you follow that up with, well, how long have you been writing? Two years. If you've been doing anything two years, I don't think you're new at it. I don't care if you only do it like once a month. You've You've done it 24 times for two years you're not new if you're looking at it in terms of whether or not you've been published as a lot of writers do there are people by that definition if you're only new when you're unpublished there are people who are new for 25 years that doesn't make any sense to me so what exactly is it that you're new at are you talking about a lack of experience you don't know how to do things Okay, well, if you get some experience, if you ask some questions, if you study, if you read some books, if you see how other people are doing it, and you learn either through instruction or osmosis how things work, doesn't that make you less new? What exactly is the label giving you that you think you need to carry it with you? Like, how does this help you do what you're doing? I I don't think it does. Um, but you get to decide how long you carry that label and what that label means and if that label is something you need to like earn your way out of. For me, for my way of thinking, it's a dumb label. You're new the day you start. You are not new any day thereafter. That's That's my view. On we go. Next question. Question seven. Who decides what goes on the Spotify playlist for my book? Whoever made the playlist. Just so we're clear, um, you don't need to make a playlist. If you make a playlist because you want to make a playlist, that's great. Uh, it's not a publishing requirement. You can you can make a p- playlist. Go ahead, make yourself happy. But you get to decide that. It's not a like a. Somebody from the office doesn't like come down and say, "Damn it, put on that Taylor Swift song." That, that's not how that works. You get to decide. Next question. Question number 8. I want to traditionally publish my debut novel. That's a lot of tu sounds. I want to publish my debut novel. Shouldn't I just take the advance I'm offered? Why? Okay. Okay. Let's 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 break this down more clearly. If you're happy with that number, yes. Take it. Go ahead. Nothing wrong with that. It's fine. Take it. If, however, you're not happy with that number, if it seems low to you and if it seems extra low because then you're looking at the schedule for payouts and you're seeing there's a lot of gaps between those, like it's going to be six months, eight months, nine months between some of those payments and those payments are, you know, crazy low, like under a hundred dollars in some cases. Yes, the total advance might be low. You don't have to automatically take what's given to you. you. You can negotiate. Or if you're uncomfortable, you can get a lawyer to negotiate on your behalf. You don't just have to blindly accept what's given to you just because the people who are giving it to you seem, for whatever reason, to be in charge. Because here's what you're not thinking about. Uh, they're renting this book from you they are they are buying the rights for a, a period of time from you you can always withdraw from this arrangement and they'll be out of book you can always walk away you can always leave this behind they need you they need this book i'm not saying that you can you know try to leverage your advance from $5000 to $20 million um, there's a lot of other factors that go into determining that number, not including the cheapness of your publisher, but the, the overall idea is you don't have to just blindly take it. Now, I know for a lot of people there's a fear that if they ask for $1,000 more, that the publisher will, will quail or, or, or complain or, or bitch, piss, and moan in some way to, to like make you feel bad. Um, you don't have to feel bad. Like, they're going to cry poor. A billion-dollar company is going to turn around and go, no, we don't really have that much money to give you, which is horseshit. But um, they're going to say they don't because they don't want you asking for more. But that doesn't mean you're prohibited from asking for more, nor does that mean it's a bad idea to ask for more. If you want more, go get more. You don't have to take what's given on the idea because they'll tell you this. They'll try to sell you on the idea that you won't get a better deal anywhere else. How do they know? How do they know? What, are they going to blackball you? What, are they going to tell every other publisher, hey, when this person comes around because I gave them a ridiculously low number, don't give them anything so they have to come crawling back hat in hand? Um, last I knew, pe- that practice kind of fell out of favor in like the late 90s um, and that's primarily because some of the authors were real assholes. But how wh- how do they know you're not going to get a better deal somewhere else? Why why can't you ask? I'm not again. I want to make clear. I'm not saying go from like two thousand to two billion or something. Like don't hyper jack up the numbers just because you're you know thinking you can. But at the same time, like if the number seems low and you want to take a step forward and kind of. Hey, could we could we go to 6? Could we go to 7,000? You know, could we go to 10? Could we add an, you know, could we take a, a two book deal and go to 14? Y- you can you can advocate for yourself. You're allowed to be you're allowed to be brave like that. You're allowed to be good like that. You're allowed to request on your own behalf. You don't have to blanket take things just because you're afraid of what could happen or the no you might hear. Because they'll say no. Whatever, let them say no. Fuck them. Okay. Great. I can't get an extra $1,000? Cool. Then I want to change the dates on how this gets paid out. Oh, I can't do that either? Well, then I'll pull my book. You retain a lot more authority. You just have to act with it. They're counting, they, traditional publishing, is counting on you not doing that. They're counting on the fact that they are traditional publishing. They took their shirts in and they they have all the money and they have a fancy-ass fucking building. And you are just you with the dirt in your back seat and the french fry under the front seat and the tissues that are wadded up in your purse or the dollar bill that's crinkled in your wallet or the fact that the other day you spilled your coffee on your shirt. They're counting on them versus you that you're going to just sit there and take it. And you don't have to. You can totally speak up for yourself. Also, side note, if you're ever really like, John, I don't know if I can do that, have me do it. Just send me an email. Tell me when your meeting is. I promise you I will wear any number of moderately offensive t-shirts or actually like a nice shirt with a tie, maybe, if you ask nice, and I will happily advocate for you because I don't mind. What am I going to do? You get to stand up for yourself. You're good enough. You can totally crane kick the blonde kid in the face and win the Hill Valley Karate Tournament. I believe in you next question question nine is it bad that I'm serializing my draft on Substack before I query it yes yes it is so okay okay Here, here's why I'm, um, um, my eyes are wide on this question you're publishing your, your, your thing the minute you put it on Substack you've self-published done done Congratulations, you're a published author. It is unlikely that you will be able to repackage that as a book as though it was never read before and sell it to somebody else because the minute you mention, "Oh, I've been previously putting this out on Substack," you you can't call it a new novel. It's one thing if we're taking blog posts and we're packaging them up as a book of writing advice. And then you can, like, because your writing advice gets buried on the internet because you write a blog post a day for a thousand days, you can totally, like, repackage that. It's nonfiction. It operates slightly differently. This is different than publishing your work for literally anybody with a link. It's not like you're putting it behind a paywall. If you were putting it behind a paywall or a subscription thing, then yes, we could make a case for you could totally query it and it would be fine because it was not generally available to the public as is. But if you're just throwing it out there for freezies, just for giggles, for anybody to be able to just kind of come along because you're going to put a link somewhere on social media, hey, come check out my book on Substack, you've published it. You published it. You're a published author. Congratulations. Next question. Question ten: Why aren't more people more flexible in the way uh, in their ways of getting published? Um, an expectation of legitimacy, an expectation of response, uh, and a fear of other responses. Here's what I mean. So people want to get published a certain way, or they want to have their book produced in a certain way how many people do we both know who are like I need to hold my book in my hands why why Why? because I like the feel of a book no you remember times you enjoyed holding certain books at certain times the act of holding a piece of paper is a thing you do all the fucking time it's not the act you like it's the nostalgia of specific memory that's what you like about it. You want that sense of accomplishment. You want that sense that it feels real to you because it's a physical object. What that suggests is that you think that when it's digital on a Kindle or a screen, it's less real to you. And that's something you need to figure out for yourself because I'm pretty sure all the digital stuff I just read and bought this week feels pretty real. Because you're also making the case by implication that audiobooks aren't real. Because I don't have a physical book. I have a, a person in my ear telling me and I'm imagining the story the same way. But people have this, this expectation that some types of production, tum, some types of manufacture, some types of results count more. Even if I tell them a billion times everything's either equal or it's not. Uh, they, they think that some things are somehow more legit, that it lends more credibility Other people will hem and haw about this and say, well, it's a lifelong dream. I've always wanted to be a published author. I've always wanted to hold my book. Uh Uh-huh, you you can just hold a digital copy. It's fine. People get real locked into that. And people get especially locked in uh, after rejections happen. They double down. Well, I'll just keep making a query letter. Okay, have you thought about self-publishing? Have you thought about, you know, not just making a PDF? Oh, I have to go on Amazon. Why do you have to go on Amazon? Everybody else is on Amazon, you wanna go there too? What if you just sold it off your website? What if you just had like a WooCommerce plugin or a Shopify link, or you just straight up had a PayPal link or a Square account or something? Like there's a bajillion ways to do this. Why, why, why do you have to do it the way everybody else is doing it? You'll get the same results, people will buy your book, but why do you get so dialed into the specifics? Why? Do you think they're less credible? Do you think it's it's bad that you're committing some kind of secret taboo? Oh, I don't have my book on Amazon. I have mine on Bookshop. Oh, okay. Who cares? It's still available, isn't it? I can still give you money for it, right? Why? Why get locked in? And chances are you get locked in because you think that if you get locked in a certain way, you will get the response you want. You'll get a yes. And if you get... If you deviate from that, you'll get a response of, oh, what's wrong with them? Oh, that work must be inferior because it's not available publicly. There are a ton of authors who don't want to deal with Amazon and their DRM and their monopolistic practices and everything. So they put their books out on like Libro or Bookshop or anywhere else. And, you know, they might, they, they're they they're doing okay. I mean, as far as I know, I, I don't know them individually but I imagine they're able to like afford the roof over their head mostly and buy food and not starve I think people get locked in because they're, they're expecting things to go a certain way they're expecting responses from the audience and that if they don't follow this expectation and treat it as though it is truth uh, they won't get the expectation they want and everything will be bad in like that nebulous way that it'll just be a bad idea if I don't do it a certain way But people get real rigid about it. Also, and this just occurred to me as I was answering this question, uh, some people are lazy as fuck. Like if I just do it the way everybody else is doing, I know exactly what I have to do and I don't have to do anything new. I don't have to learn anything new. I don't have to try very hard. I can just click through the the Amazon, Kindle, Wizard and one, two, three, four, five, type, 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 boom, my book is up. And that's different than having to like sit down and really like, get a plugin on my .com and manage my WordPress and all this shit or figure out how to link this to a sales page. Like, I don't want to have to do work. I just want the end result. I think that drives an awful lot of people too, which is bad because sometimes the end result you want is only going to be achievable by doing some kind of work. And that might mean pushing yourself or challenging yourself or changing the way you do a thing. And that rigidity is holding you back. That's why I think people do it. On we go. Question 11. Should I even care what genres are popular while I'm writing? Kinda. Kinda. In the sense of like, oh, that's popular. Maybe I should check that book out. That sounds interesting to me. Let me let me go find out what that is. But in terms of like while you're writing, right now, let's say you're writing a fantasy novel, right now... There are non-fantasy genres that are popular: romance, biography, young adult, children's picture book. Those are popular right now, uh, mainly because of the time of year. Mainly because other thing, other single books in those field, uh, in those genres, have been popular, but they're popular right now, and they don't have anything to do with your fantasy novel. And here's a fun fact: they're going to be popular during the entire time you're writing your book whether it takes you a day a week a month a year 10 years whatever to finish this book those genres are still going to be popular maybe one will be more so than another but they're always popular because that's frequently popular you know spots for readership if you're asking the question i need to know what's popular so that i can incorporate it into your work uh no don't do that you're just chasing trends and that's just going to lead to more disappointment than success it's nice to know what's popular because it might expose you to more things that you might like to read, but it is not necessary to know what's popular if it's outside the wheelhouse of your story. You don't have to know. There's no quiz, there's no test. Nobody's coming to like yell at you and demand that you like tell me the most popular romance novel right now. Like n- nobody's nobody's doing that. Don't don't worry about it. Next question, question twelve: What discourages you the most about writing communities? Passivity, passivity, um, a large population of people who don't do anything, that discourages me. Because I don't understand what they're doing. Like I, I'm, I'm a member of several writing discords. Uh, fewer now. Actually, in the course in between answering this question or the last question and this question, I left quite a few servers because they I was I wouldn't get anything out of it. But in the servers where I remain, there's tons of people—thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred more—and on any given day, I think I see maybe five, six some cases 10 people saying anything not even like talking about their writing just like saying anything at all the same 10 people they're talking recipes they're talking about their kids they're talking about a bird they saw outside they're, they're, they're you know complaining about the heat they're you know talking about a video game that's coming out or whatever like they're, they're active meanwhile there's this whole column over on the right like 100 people who are online the little the little meter the the away indicator indicates that they're online but i don't see him saying anything why would you cuz you have to make some effort to join these groups you got to click a link you got to get an invite code you got to get like a qr code or whatever it's not just like a you inhale and suddenly you join you have to do some effort right why why would you go to the effort of doing this if you're not going to get something out of it? Why just sit there? Why just sit there? If you're just there because it's going to give you news and announcements, okay, I guess that makes sense. But if you're not going to act on those news and announcements, why does it matter? I'm a member of several discords for various things I support on Patreon or various you know projects from people I admire. And... I'm not terribly active on there beyond like wishing somebody a happy birthday or, you know, maybe, you know, commenting, oh, I love that last video or whatever. But, yeah, I'm not terribly active. I could consider leaving and my life would not be unduly affected. But I think passivity in a writing space is pointless I think it's a waste of everybody's time I think it's a waste of your time if you're the passive one and I think it's a waste of the time of the people around you who might be expecting you to chime in to share your writing to ask writing questions to get feedback to give feedback to do more than just sit there and take up space I think um as we get visited at the end of this by a cat I think um I think passivity as a member of a community is the worst thing possible. I'm not saying you've got to like jump in and try to take what you believe a leadership role would be. But you at least got to do more than just sit there and take up space. That's what I think bothers me the most. I don't understand why you would do it. I don't understand. Like you say you want to write. You say you want to do these things. You say you want to like go places and have stuff happen. But you don't take any steps to make that happen. I don't get it. And question 13 to wrap us up, how can I reduce or ease the frustration I feel about my writing taking too long? Okay, I hear you. You think it's supposed to not take as long. You expected to be farther along, faster than you're at. Part of that is under your control. Part of that is how frequently are you doing the thing. You'll make more progress if you do it more often. But part of that is also how you're measuring it. First of all, I want to ask you why it matters how long it takes. Do you think that if it's better, you'll be done sooner? Really? What, what information do you have to base that on? Is dinner better when you eat it quickly versus when you eat it at a less hurried pace? Does a, a dinner that takes 20 minutes taste better than a dinner that takes 22 minutes to cook? Does that matter? Why is speed, why is time a big deal in this question? I ask that a lot of clients who complain frequently that, oh my God, it's taking so long. Why? Why does that matter? If you're doing work you're proud of and you're doing your best at it when you can, why does it matter how long it takes? Now, for some people, they get defensive and they say something like I want it to be over because it's hard and I want to get to like the part where I do easier things. Like the writing is hard and revising is simple. Or so they say. Or I want to be done so I can get published. They're, they're thinking like 12 steps down the road when they're on like step two. And um, it doesn't work that way. No one is timing you. You're timing you, but nobody else. Nobody else is sitting there going, huh, it's taking them an awful long time. And anybody who sits there and, like, uh, you know, there's that family guy bit about, like, still writing that novel, huh, taking forever, huh, always writing that book, huh? Yeah, I understand that there's, like, a social joke about how long it takes to write a book, but it takes a while to write a book. And I understand that you're looking at famous authors who don't take that long to write a whole book. I get it. But there's several factors you're not considering. One, you don't know how far along they were at the time. Two, they don't have anything to do but write the book. They don't have a day job. That is their day job. They don't have something else to do. They have this book. This is how they spend their 10 hours a day. You're spending your 10 hours a day at an office job. They're spending their 10 hours a day with this book. Of course they're going to go faster than you. They're doing it more often than you are. Why are we rushing? Why are you in a hurry? Because you you think the reward will be better if we rush? That we will get bonus points and the high score if we're done before the time ticks down? There is no time constraint. No one's going to care if you want to publish this book and you finish the draft in April if you're not querying it until December. No one's going to care how long it took you if you're self-publishing because they just see the book that's available for sale. No one cares. Cares So why is this a big deal to you? If you're expecting other people's responses, what is it you think they're going to be mad at you? Why would they be mad at you? You're making them a thing. You know, if if somebody bakes you cookies or brownies, are you going to be mad at them that they weren't done sooner? Like, the oven had to bake them. I understand being impatient, and we'll talk about impatience in a second, But like, what's the rush? Now, if this is just a matter of impatience, you want to be done faster because you think it should be done faster because you think you should be going faster, then look at your technique. Look at how you're doing what you're doing. Look at why you're doing it at the rate you're doing it because maybe that's the best you can do right now. You go work 12 hours, you come home, you're sort of like mentally gelatinous. You take 45 minutes to eat, take a shower, sit back down, and somehow you're supposed to muster the same amount of energy for your own stuff when work is grinding you to a pulp because capitalism is a trap designed to murder us all. Like, what... If you're doing the best you can, I understand being frustrated that you wish your good enough was better than it is, but in order to make your good enough better, you got to change things. And some of that's going to be under your control, how you spend your time, how much rest you get, how much energy you put behind certain tasks, but some of that's going to be out of your control. Like like your work schedule or or th- your commute because maybe some of the time you could be spent riding is time you're spent driving in a car. Who knows? But why is it so important that the time matters to you? The only cases I can think of where time matters to an author are, one, they're dying. Terminal illness. And they're trying to get this thing done before they die. Or two, they're really old. Like in their mid-90s, let's say. And they want to get this done before they die. Again, it's just another I don't have long to live situation. If you're not actively engaged in either of those two struggles, and I understand like, oh, I could die any day. My, I could just have a heart attack. Sure, we could have that paranoid discussion about how any minute a meteor could come smashing through my window here, strike me dead, and this, this chat would never happen. Sure, we could have that moment. You could get hit by a bus tomorrow, assuming you leave the house and there's a bus. Like, sure, I guess. But if you're hit by the bus or the meteor or you drop dead or whatever, you're not going to get the reward you're looking for anyway because you're dead. So what what's, What are we arguing about? What's the debate here? Why does this matter to you? You're just impatient because it's difficult and you want to be rewarded? You're not feeling validated? You, you, you want more support? You want somebody to tell you you're doing a good job? You're doing an incredibly hard thing. You're being creative. You're standing on your own two feet. You're being a little emotionally vulnerable. You're being open. You're being receptive. You're doing your best. You're using your best craft at the best of your ability. Even when there's a whole number of things arrayed against you, like jobs and bills and health and this, that, and the other, you're doing great. It's really fucking hard out here. I get it. I'm not saying that, oh, well, you've got to recognize that you don't have as bad as somebody else. That's possibly true, but not relevant to our discussion right now. I'm not looking to minimize what you are doing, trying to get you to be quiet about how you feel. I want you to recognize that you're doing your best, and it's hard, and it takes time. But that doesn't mean you're bad at it. That doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means you're doing a thing that takes time. Could we do more things to change the amount of time it takes? Yes, we could speed up, we could slow down. We could do it more often, we could do it less often, sure. We can affect it that way. But there's no guarantee that suddenly it's going to get better or worse because of that. Like, there's no measure, there's no connection between how quickly you do it and how well you do it. If you were doing it better, there's no guarantee you'd be done faster. The two things are not proportional like that. It takes as long as it takes. And while it takes, however long that is, you always have to do your best. That's, that's the best piece of advice to give you. Because sweating time and telling yourself and telling me and telling other people that it's taking too long... All that's screaming, all that's communicating to other people is that you are very, very impatient and you're not getting enough support. If you need more support, ask. If you're impatient, say so. But don't just sit there and say it's taking too long because it'll be done when it's done and it takes as long as it takes. And besides, you're the one in charge of how long it takes. So are you just mad that you don't have the luxury or flexibility to ha- do what you want to do because of bills and jobs and 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 money and time and stuff like you're you are a slave to someone else for a few hours a day because you need that money to keep a roof over your head and you're mad at yourself that or you think it's your art's fault? It's not. It's their fault. Go get mad at them. I would. I am. You're doing the best you can. You're really doing the best you can. If you need more support, ask for it. You'd be surprised how much you can get if you just ask. I know it's taking a while. I know you wish it was done sooner so that we could get to the reward stage or so that you wouldn't feel so uncomfortable or frustrated or tired or dumb or whatever. But all these stages, all these steps are temporary. They pass. Keep going. Don't give up. Do your best. Really and truly do your best. It'll be okay. I promise. And that is the writer's chat for the week thank you so much for checking this out i don't have outro music i'm downstairs in the kitchen i thought the cat was going to sit here i'd pet the cat and she would purr into the microphone and that could be our outro but she has of course decided to go sit in the sun all the way over there so um i'm not getting up to do that so just imagine here for a few seconds cat purring cat purring cat purring cat purring okay there we go Thank you so much for checking this out. All power to all people. I will talk to you very, very soon. Um, Two quick notes. One, if you liked this and you want to check out more stuff like it and you want more stuff like this to happen, go over to patreon.com slash John Helps You Write Better and two bucks a month makes this stuff happen. Also, if you've... uh, if you want more of this every day in your ears, not so much where I sound like this, but where I sound like I'm not you know slowly crushed under what feels like a head full of snot um go over wherever you get your pods casted, go check out John helps you write better uh this week has been marketing week or it continues to be marketing week, I should say so uh go check that out if you've got questions about marketing. I will talk to you guys very very soon. See ya.